Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and health care with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. Two propositions on the November ballot in New York are drawing backlash from Republicans and conservatives. They say measures to allow same-day voter registration and universal mail-in voting could increase voter fraud. While supporters say there's no evidence of that happening in other states where the practices are allowed, the Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt with more. Proposition 3 on this fall's ballot would allow the state legislature to enact same-day voter registration. It would eliminate a requirement in the state's constitution that says someone must be registered to vote 10 days before Election Day. Proposition 4 would repeal the requirement that limits absentee voting by mail to people who are too ill to come to the polls or are traveling and away from their polling site. It would eliminate obstacles to the state enacting universal mail-in balloting. The head of the state's Republican Party, Nick Langworthy, says if the propositions are approved, they could have a drastic negative impact on elections and create chaos at local boards of election. There are things that are there in very flowery, beautiful language that sound like they are, you know, for the betterment of our government and our access to our elections. But in reality, these propositions are devastating to our election integrity. Langworthy spoke in Buffalo in one of several stops on a statewide tour to gain attention to the propositions and the Republicans' opposition to them. The state's conservative party is also opposed and is running ads. Senate GOP Minority Leader Robert Ort says the proposition to allow same-day voter registration could create election fraud unless voters are required to show identification. Ort is the sponsor of a voter ID bill in the Senate. It's the height of hypocrisy, racism, and prejudice to suggest that in the year 2021, people of color, minorities, do not possess some form of identification. Or it also warns that increased mail-in voting could lead to fraudulent ballot harvesting. What we're talking about is organizations with a vested interest in the outcome of that election going to people with ballots that are already filled out and saying, just need you to sign. It's modern-day ballot box stuffing. According to research by, among others, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and New York University's The Brennan Center, incidences of voter fraud in the U.S. are extremely rare and occur in just a fraction of a percentage point of cases. Supporters of the propositions, including Susan Lerner of Common Cause, say the Republicans are making false claims about what she says are common-sense proposals. This is fear-mongering of the worst and most egregious sort, confusing the voters and frightening them, moving towards a big lie, which simply should not be acceptable in our political discourse. Lerner says 20 states and Washington, D.C. already have same-day voter registration, and she says 34 states already allow voting by mail. There are many states, including states with Republican-lead legislatures like Alaska, Wisconsin, and Georgia, which enjoy the very rights that opponents want to deny to New Yorkers, no excuse absentee voting and same day voter registration. 
Why should voters in Buffalo or Brooklyn miss out on the same opportunities as voters in two-thirds of the nation? Lerner says in the 2020 elections, because of the COVID-19 pandemic, New Yorkers were allowed to cite the coronavirus as a reason to request an absentee ballot. She says boards of elections processed the 1.4 million additional ballots without incident. She says same-day registration and mail-in voting are popular with the public and increased turnout. Both sides say they intend to get the word out through Election Day. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Joining us now, Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shartok. Alan, after months of speculation, New York State Attorney General Tish James is poised to announce a run for governor. That's according to multiple reports this Thursday morning. The decision is said to be imminent. One newspaper even reporting that she's already recorded an ad. This certainly changes the race. Well, it does. It's something that I've been expecting for quite a while now. You don't go around the state the way that she has without intending to do something. And clearly, she has been a magnificent attorney general without fear or favor. She has really acquitted herself extraordinarily well. We do know that in New York State, attorney general means almost governor AG, and that attorney generals like Cuomo, like Spitzer, have risen to the top spot. Not only that, she is a woman of color, and she comes from the right area of New York. In other words, we elect our top people from New York City, not from Buffalo or the Niagara region. So, you know, she has the advantage, of course, of being black at a time when black forces in New York are becoming more and more pronounced as they should. And you find that she is where she needs to be in terms of her politics. Now, the establishment, and I'm talking the business establishment and other people, have been trying to push Hochul into this non-contestant area. Of course, there are going to be other people besides these two, Hochul and James, in the primary. Maybe even Cuomo comes back in. And we know that Tom Swasey and other people are going to be contesting. So it could be anything. We even hear that de Blasio, who has not been a great public figure in terms of the amount of people who love the guy is thinking of coming in because he's term limited as mayor, but mayors don't tend to go on as governors in New York. So it's a very exciting day, and I think it's going to be a fascinating race. I'm already hearing from people who don't like the kinds of things I've been saying about Tish James and what a good public figure she's been, and there's not much they can do to scare me off, that's for sure. Well, the Siena poll that came out last week, you talked to Don Levy about it, tested a four-way matchup among Democrats, found Hochul in the lead with 39%, James getting the support of 20% of her party's voters, de Blasio with 10%, Jamani Williams with 8%, leaving more than a fifth of Democrats still undecided and up for grabs. You mentioned Cuomo, there's Tom Swasey, but there's a potential matchup and then there's a declared matchup. That's right. 
In other words, Tish James wasn't in it at the time. She has, as I've indicated already, been a magnificent attorney general. She really has showed her stuff. And I think geographically, ethically, in every other way, she becomes a very exciting candidate. And now she's in it. Now let's start taking the polls once she's had a chance to establish herself. Clearly, she would not go into it if she didn't think she could win. And the idea that people are saying, well, she came in second in a premature poll is not really the kind of thing that races are made of. As we have always said, David, a poll is a snapshot on a particular day. That day was before she was a candidate in this case. So I think James is going to be a very formidable candidate. Also in your conversation this week with Don Levy, the director of the Siena College Research Institute poll, the survey they did, and this is countrywide, not just our region. And what they found was, for example, Alan, overwhelmingly, 84% of Americans, no matter what their party, support voting rights. And that's including provisions making it as easy as possible for people to vote. And when they ask what's dividing Americans, overwhelmingly people say the political class. I think all of that is true. However, the reality is every time the Democrats, for example, try to expand voting rights, the Republicans don't like it. They make up excuses. They say that the elections will be rigged, whatever they're going to say, because they know that Democrats will do well if there is an expansion of voting rights. So the Republicans, no matter what their constituents are saying in a poll, are not for allowing it. We know that. We know there's a bill that would allow it, that would make it happen, and they've been against it all along. And the other problem is that politicians of both stripes, both Republicans and Democrats, got there under the old system. So there's always a recalcitrance to go to a different system in which somebody else, Joe the barber or the bus driver, might come in and run against them in their minds. Doesn't really happen, but in their minds. So a lot of people like to keep it the way it is. The Democrats, of course, are really hell-bent on making voting reform happen, but the Republicans are going to stand in the way, and it doesn't matter what their constituents say they want suggestions that the Siena Research Institute makes after, for example, seeing that Americans, no matter what party they're in, are upset with this political class, politicians who, quote, divide us, is to suggest term limits for members of Congress. Well, you know, I have always been a term limit person, even though my profession as a political scientist does not believe that. The political scientists believe people should be allowed to vote for whoever they want, but there is a political class which has taken over, no question. And it is too bad because there are some wonderful people who have been around for quite a while. For example, my congressman, Richie Neal, is a good example of somebody who serves with incredible distinction. And because he has been around for a long time, and because he's as good as he is, he gets to be head of the powerful Ways and Means Committee. So, there's arguments to be made that term limits will hurt. On the other hand, there are people who are literally bums, who hang on and who are in a particular kind of district, often which has been gerrymandered to help them, who really should be getting out. And we have seen term limits work, I think, quite successfully in New York City, uh, where, you know, somebody gets a kick in the rump and says, You've had enough. Goodbye. Go find something else to run for, which they often do. Look at de Blasio now thinking about running for governor. So I'm for term limits under this circumstance of what these pollsters are finding is the perception on the part of people that we have a political class. And that is true. 
Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Chartok. listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Advocates are continuing to call for New York lawmakers to pump an additional $3 billion into the excluded workers fund. The Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas explains. On October 8th, the Department of Labor stopped accepting new applications for the $2 billion fund, designed to provide financial support to workers who were shut out from state unemployment and federal pandemic aid programs. Bianca Guerrero, campaign coordinator for the Fund Excluded Workers Coalition, says the support has materially changed the lives of workers and helped many get back on their feet. One Westchester worker is using the funds from the Excluded Worker Program to relocate his family after Hurricane Ida. Another capital region uh, worker is using the fund to put down a a down payment on a home for his family. Uh, A street vendor in Queens has used the money to pay off her husband's hospital bills for cancer surgery earlier this year, and also to reinvest in her taco business with branded aprons and signs. And a delivery worker in Queens is is using part of the money to buy a laptop so he can participate in ESL classes. Guerrero adds other workers have used the money, up to $15,000, to pay for rent, school clothing for their children, and medical treatment for those who had COVID but didn't have health insurance. Activists say many workers who applied early and qualified to receive funding have yet to see a check, while others have been reluctant to apply for benefits, fearing they'll be detained and possibly deported. Diana Cruz, the Columbia County Sanctuary Movement director of programs and services notes that qualifying workers often have to overcome language barriers and jump through hoops to produce documentation from consulates as well as documents verifying they've been in the United States for an applicable period of time. Good ha- a majority of our work is spent, you know, just doing interpretation between our community members and local institutions. Additionally, you know, I think we also have to acknowledge the fact that even though here we have a heavy population of immigrants from Spanish-speaking countries, that does not mean that they themselves speak Spanish. So I've had to work with people of indigenous backgrounds. With state budget planning already underway, advocates hope New York Governor Kathy Hochul will find the money to serve eligible workers. Karina Kaufman-Guterres, the Street Vendor Project's deputy director, says the Democrat must find a way to cover all workers who have already submitted applications. In the next budget cycle, we will also be pushing for a permanent fix to the holes in our social safety net that have excluded workers for years. Hochul's office did not respond to requests for comment. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas. Changes to federal student loan forgiveness are set to go into effect, but U.S. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand of New York says more should be done to assist public service workers. The Legislative Gazette's Lucas Willard reports. 
The federal public service loan forgiveness program is pitched as a way for people who go into certain careers, government, 501c3 not-for-profits, to have their student loans forgiven after 10 years. But there are requirements. In addition to having a certain kind of job, those who qualify must work full-time, have a direct loan, a type of federal student loan, repay under an income-driven repayment plan, and make 120 qualifying payments. Qualifying payments meaning on time for the full amount and while fully employed. U.S. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand wants to improve the PSLF program. Releasing a report on a press call Thursday, the New York Democrat said only a small amount of applicants actually get approved for forgiveness under the program. One of the PSLF participants who live in New York just 1.2% have had their loans forgiven. And in total, PSLF participants in New York still owe more than $8 billion. That accounts for nearly 10% of all outstanding federal student loan debt in the state. It's so important that we fix this program and make it work for the people who have dedicated their professional lives to our communities and our state. Eliza Kamire, who works at Skidmore College, where WAMC operates its Southern Adirondack Bureau, says a colleague told her about PSLF when she was hired full-time in 2011. And so I actually went through the steps to get it put in the correct uh, direct loan consolidation and um, was hoping to, at this point I've been at Skidmore for 10 years, so was hoping that I probably would, would be done by now. But she isn't. For one thing, the income-based monthly payment for her federal loan was too high, about $500 a month. So she postponed her payments until 2013. But even after making payments for over seven years, Kamiri isn't making much progress on her loans. I don't touch my principal, so the balance never changes. (laughs) So I can't actually, I can't get it any lower than it is, and so the only choice I have is for it to be forgiven. Kamiri said the pause in student loan payments during the pandemic allowed her to tackle her private loans, but the federal loans remain stubborn. Earlier this month, the U.S. Education Department announced several new temporary rules to allow more people to qualify for PSLF. While before, loan payments had to be made on time and in full, the new rules allow any prior payment to count as a qualifying payment, regardless of loan type or repayment plan. Additionally, previously denied PSLF applications can be reviewed, credit can be given for payments denied for technical reasons, and improvements were made to the application process. Gillibrand commended these changes, but says Congress needs to do more. She's proposing legislation that includes two changes. First, the legislation would create a new option for borrowers to have half of their loans forgiven after five years. There are more than 12,000 borrowers in New York who could have half of their debt discharged immediately if we made just that one change. And second, it would expand eligibility and reduce the confusion that has so often led to borrowers being denied forgiveness by permanently allowing all types of loans and repayment plans to qualify. And as important essential jobs are in short supply due to the pandemic and the economic recovery from last year's shutdown, Gillibrand said her changes would encourage more people to seek public service jobs. So we need people to go into nursing. We need people to go into teaching. We need people to go into Uh, public service careers. We need more firefighters, um, more police officers. Um, So it's important. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Lucas Willard.
You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. New York Governor Kathy Hochul has said she's looking into a proposal to legalize sex work in the state. The move has long been pushed by advocates who say it would empower sex workers and give them added protections. But as the Legislative Gazette's Ashley Hupful reports, there are different views on how to make the change. Early in her term, the Democrat told reporters she is speaking with advocates and is open to addressing the issue when the legislative session starts in January. It is absolutely something I've thought about and I'm considering and I'm discussing it with many advocates and people who uh, have strong opinions on this. Already, there are two competing bills in the legislature. One would completely decriminalize sex work. The other bars police from charging sex workers, but still allows them to charge clients. The Sex Trade Survivors Justice and Equality Act is sponsored by State Senator Liz Krueger of Manhattan and Assemblywoman Pamela Hunter of Syracuse, both Democrats. Kruger, of the 28th District, says she worries full decriminalization could lead to New York City becoming a center of human trafficking and legal brothels and lead to a spike in the exploitation of young people. The difference between our bills is that while we would both end the criminal penalties for people caught up in sex work, in my bill, we would continue to have penalties for human traffickers, pimps, and also Johns because of our belief that this is fundamentally exploitive of people in the sex trade, that enormous harm, physical and psychological, is being done to these women and men, that we want to end the most extreme exploitation, which I would argue is the human trafficking and pimping against their will of women and men, WAMC spoke to both former and current sex workers who disagree with that approach. Liara Rue is a sex worker in New York City. She just published a memoir, The Whore of New York. There's this image a lot of people have in their mind about sex work um, that's really scary and horrifying. And I wanted to do my part to explain why people end up in the industry and help let people understand a little bit about our world. Assemblywoman Hunter of the 128th District says there needs to be a constructive conversation on the subject. She worries the debate could be sidetracked by social media slogans like defund the police and sex work is work. Like Kruger, Hunter is concerned full decriminalization could lead to further exploitation of men and women. We can't in one chance say, you know, it's my body, my choice, and and then say, but it's okay for exploiters to continue doing what they're doing, that we just open up this wide market um, and then say it's, you know, it's a free-for-all. It, it, it cannot be like that because there are two hundreds of thousands of young people being exploited and trafficked every single day. Both Democrats also say they are concerned with the mental health aspects of the job for sex workers. They say often people get involved in sex work due to mental health issues. Rue was working in the tech industry when health problems and working conditions led her to quit. It was then she found sex work, which she found to be a positive experience. To me, it seemed like a good way to make a fair amount of money without having to put in long hours, which at the time, because of my disabilities, I wasn't able to do. I'm also queer, and so 
it felt challenging for me to ask for help from my family. And I think a lot of people who are drawn to sex work are drawn to it for similar reasons. Often sex workers have health issues or they're getting out of an abusive situation and sex work is a really easy, low barrier way to make a fair amount of money and be able to get back on your feet and support yourself relatively quickly. As she writes, Rue was in an abusive relationship during her time in sex work and was married to a woman who ultimately took most of her money. Still, she says she supports full decriminalization, though understands the concern from leaders like Kruger and Hunter. While she ultimately ended up enjoying sex work, she knows people leaving abusive relationships and teenage runaways turn to sex work because it's the only option they have. She says it's vital to provide better services like housing and food for those on the margins. There's so much shame and stigma associated with being a sex worker. I know that for me personally, it took years before I was comfortable telling anyone what my job was. And that can be a lot to carry emotionally. It'll also make it easier for people to talk with social services about what their situation is really like. I have a lot of friends who've tried to seek help over the years, but feel like they need to hide things from their service workers, like their sex work history, because they're worried that it will be used to deny them access. I think sex worker rights are sort of in a similar place to gay rights, where people were really just starting to realize just how important it was to really support people instead of being so discriminatory. For more on the debate over legalizing sex work, including an approach favored by Assembly Dean Richard Gottfried, visit WAMC.org. I'm Ashley Helpful. And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. That's 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2144. Or just listen or schedule a podcast on the web at wamc.org. And join us again next week at this same time for more news on New York State government and politics. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustina. 